What's up, Trek Nation, and welcome back to After the Snap. It's me, Tasha Pierce, and I am back with the recap review of the third episode of the third season of Star Trek Picard. This one is entitled 17 Seconds, and in which Picard grapples with an explosive, life-altering revelation, while the Titan and her crew try to outmaneuver a relentless fanatic in a lethal game of nautical cat and mouse. Meanwhile, Raffi and Worf uncover a nefarious plot from a vengeful enemy Starfleet has long since forgotten. That's what we're looking at this week, and if you have not yet watched... 17 seconds, what the heck are you even doing? This point on, I'm dropping spoiler bomb after spoiler bomb after spoiler bomb. So tread carefully in these Federation streets. So if you'd like to know what I thought about 17 seconds, let's go. Good Lord, y'all, we still in the nebula. So this week's episode picks up right where last week's episode ended with the Titan A being pursued into, deeper into the nebula by the Shrike. We know that Vatic uh, is interested in getting Jack off of the Titan and it seems like she is, she's getting hit them with these little love taps with her torpedoes just to push them back further into the nebula. So John Luke Picard and Riker are having a conversation about what her strategy might be. Picard says that he realizes at this point that Vatic is just trying to make them submit. So after our title card, we go back in time where we see Picard and Riker having celebratory drinks in 10-4 in Los Angeles. They are celebrating the birth of Thaddeus Riker, uh, Troy and Riker's son. Now, this is roughly 2381, which would ironically be right around the time that Beverly should have been either pregnant or having Jack. Um, so Riker breaks into a story with Picard about the moment that he knew that he was a father was a 17-second turtle lift ride when he was unsure if his son was doing okay. He was called off of the bridge of the Titan, and that 17-second ride he felt like was an eternity. And he then knew the anxiety, the emotions, the overwhelming love that one can feel for a little tiny human. And he wished that Picard could feel that too. So that is where we got our title, 17 Seconds. And it's beautiful how they make it come back around because Picard does get to feel that same 17 second ride, anxiety ridden ride in a turbo lift, being concerned about his son. But we can't get there before he and Beverly have a heart-to-heart -heart talk about why she decided to not tell him about Jack. She gave some very valid reasons to her, but it didn't take into account how he might have felt. She basically felt like those stars owned John Luke Picard. When the stars called, he was going to run. We know this is the truth because he did the same shit to Loris. He just did it to Loris. As soon as Beverly Crusher called, he up, jumped, and ran to the stars. Now, that doesn't mean that he would have done that had he known that he had a, a son to raise. She she made the choice for him. It was a very emotional conversation. Uh, John Luke was presenting his side of things, which were valid as well. So this is a situation where technically neither one of them are wrong for thinking the way that they think. But Beverly made the statement that she knew she could protect her son. She was not sure that she could protect Picard's. Uh, being Picard's son kept a target on their backs and she didn't want to, to have to live running and looking over her shoulder trying to keep her child safe, especially since she lost her entire family, as she said, to the same stars that he was chasing. So they made, both of them made strong, valid points. I can't stand with, with uh, Beverly on this because at the end of the day, John Luke Picard is an honorable man and I'm pretty darn sure, like he said, he would have been prepared to be a father and possibly even a husband if she would have given that choice, but she didn't. Oh, and before I forget, we also learned how Jack got that accent. Now, we were all speculating that he got the accent by listening to 
uh, Captain's Logs from John Luke Picard. But in, in essence, he got the accent by going to school in London. He picked it up and he never shook it. So is it believable? Probably not. He probably heard uh, American English with that type of accent far more than he heard the British accent. But I'll, I'll take it. I'll take it as an excuse. And one more point about that conversation before I move on. Beverly told John Luke Picard that she gave Jack the option of getting to know his father. She was going to try to contact him and get them together. And Jack made the choice that he did not want to know his dad. And you could tell that hurt Picard. Uh, so much so that when Riker started inquiring about how that conversation went with Beverly, he told him, look, this situation is irrevocable. Basically, it's, it's like, yeah, this is my kid, but he doesn't want me involved in his life. Now, from years of watching Star Trek, we know that once you enter a nebula, you start to lose your sensors and you're really flying blind. You don't know what is going on around you. And this is no different in Star Trek Picard. We don't know where the Shrike is and the Shrike shouldn't know where the Titan is, but they continuously keep finding the Titan. And we go over on the Shrike ship and we're seeing a very different Vatic this week. She is more calculating, more methodical, more precise. She's all the laughing and joking is to the side. She has a singular focus and that focus is, I want Jack off of that ship alive, it appears. So she is just playing a tactical game of cat and mouse with them. Shaw continues to wonder out loud how she keeps finding them. We know that that's going to come back around towards the end of this episode. Uh, she finds them again, obviously. And even though we are flying blind, Shaw has people positioned at the rear window of, of the uh, bridge. And they are calling out when they make visual contact with the Shrike. They make visual contact, the Shrike attacks, and this is a big one. And this one, Shaw gets injured. Shaw is seriously injured, and he has the presence of mind before being escorted off of the bridge to sickbay to transfer command to Captain William Riker. Now, even though I still feel like Shaw is a little bit more, I, I say hysterical, he wasn't, he wasn't acting hysterically. But he was definitely different than I've seen other captains in similar situations. But I'm finding myself still impressed with uh, his command and his command style. So we got Riker in the command chair and he orders Picard to send a torpedo at the Shrike to be kind of like a concussion wave that will kind of knock the Shrike off of the Titan's tail. They do that and it works. And uh, Picard looks over to Riker and tells him, I, I think it's time you call me number one. Now, that was like, ha-ha, laugh, laugh, but we'll find that the warm and fuzzies don't last for long because things are going to get far more intense on the bridge. Meanwhile, down in sickbay, things are starting to heat up there as well. Uh, the doctor of the Titan, I think her name is Dr. Oak, is really not feeling Beverly being down there trying to basically give her the assist in sickbay. She feels like her practices might be outdated, and she probably feels some type of way about them being under the situation that they're in because it's all because of the arrival of Beverly and Jack. In the mean and in between, Shaw is brought in and he is in bad shape. Uh, Beverly correctly ascertains that he has internal bleeding. And as they're treating him, Jack leans in to talk to him because Shaw wants to know how Vatic and the Shrike keep finding them. This is when Jack looks down at the floor and sees a trail of blood. And then he thinks about a Fenris Ranger uh, tactic, what they use called blood in the water. This makes him think of, of course, Seven, who is famously a former Fenris Ranger. So he heads to her quarters to kind of put his their heads together about what could be leading the Shrike straight to the Titan. 
we become a little more acquainted with Lieutenant Tavine, who is the Vulcan science officer. She is reporting these energy pulses that are coming from the nebula. These energy pulses have both electrical and biological signatures, meaning that this ain't no regular nebula. <laughs> um, many of us are trying to figure out what this nebula could be. Uh, if you would like to dissect that more with us, we do a live stream on Sundays where we discuss these kinds of theories. But anywho, it's something up with this nebula. This nebula is not just a nebula. We do get to see that Lieutenant Tavine is very competent at her job. So realizing that these energy pulses that's coming from the nebula are doing a lot of damage to the Titan, Riker is ordering them to leave this nebula and leave it now. Now, Picard says, no, we need to turn around and fight. We need to fight the Shrike uh, instead of trying to run away from her. Uh, but this is where Riker and Picard are not seeing eye to eye. Riker repeats his order. We need to leave the nebula. We need to prepare SOS to send to Starfleet, the closest star base, for backup. Uh, but before they can do that, we find out what that unidentified weapon in Vatic's uh, arsenal was. And it was, again, that portal weapon that was stolen from the Daystrom Institute. And she uses this weapon very effectively. In fact, every time the Titan feels like they are getting out of this nebula, she launches a projectile that opens a portal pulls them right back in. They, they just end up right back where they started. So it appears her plan is to keep doing this repeatedly, bringing them back into the heart of the nebula. To, and she wants to do this until the Titan is completely disabled. I haven't talked a lot about Seven, but Seven has been confined to quarters for her insubordination. Uh, and while she's in there, first and foremost, we see that she has these little models that she works on, one of which being uh, the Voyager. So she still has fond feelings for the Voyager. But anywho, Sydney LaForge is the first person to come and visit Seven in her quarters, basically just uh, offering her a shoulder, telling her, I understand the predicament that you're in. I find myself in similar predicaments where people only see me as Jordy LaForge's daughter. They won't let me forge my own path in Starfleet. Uh, and she understands how Seven might feel. She basically was just saying, look, I see you. I understand you. And I'm here if you need somebody. I thought it was a cool gesture. And we got to know a little bit more about Sydney and her personality. Uh, the second visit, of course, was Jack. That's when Jack came and told her about blood in the water. Seven and him started rushing around the ship, trying to figure out where the source of this blood in the water that was leading the Shrike straight to them. Where, where is this source? They find it. It is a verterium leak. They are using a mass spectrometer to track this verterium leak through the nebula. And once they find this, the source of the leak, they know they need these gas masks to go in and try to fix the problem. They're also trying to get in contact with the bridge, let them know, hey, we got this problem. We, we see how she's finding us and we're about to fix it. Upon further investigation, they find that there has to be a saboteur on board the Titan because this area has been damaged by short range phaser fire. That means somebody standing directly in front of this thing shot it out. That's an intentional act. So now we got to worry about who this saboteur is. And let me tell you, this is a saboteur that you do not want to have on a confined space like a starship. So Seven and Jack separate. Seven is going to see if she can stop this leak. And Jack is guarding the area where the sabotage occurred. That's when Jack is confronted by Ensign Foster. And we didn't know Ensign Foster's name up until now, I don't think. But Ensign, Ensign Foster is obviously the saboteur. When he comes in, he did not come into that room to talk to Jack. He starts manhandling Jack, like picking him up and tossing him across the room. Uh, he snatches off Jack's gas mask and tosses it to the side. And noticing, Ensign Foster is not having any issue with breathing in his atmosphere, and he is abnormally strong. But anywho, 
once he has disabled Jack, uh, he leaves the room, leaving Jack basically to die from inhaling all of this poisonous gas. Uh, we find out during this fight that his face kind of shifts when, when Jack tries to punch back. And that is our first clue of who the saboteur really is and who this enemy of the Federation really is. Before I go on with the Titan, let's go check in on Rafi and Worf. And like I thought last week, the addition to Worf in this B-plot makes it far more palatable to me. Uh, Rafi and Worf work well, well together with Worf strangely playing the comic relief and Rafi is kind of the straight guy. I liked it. I, I know there, are, there may be some people who had problems with Worf being as funny as he was, but I liked it. I like to see the evolution of Worf. I did not know that we were going to get Worf's Starbucks order, but here we are. Uh, and we also discovered the behead beheadings occur on Wednesdays. But anywho, their plot centers upon them finding a man named Titus Ricca, who they believe to be a human who has knowledge of what happened with this weapon over at Starfleet, uh, the Starfleet Recruitment Center on Matalas Prime. So they go on a recon mission and surprisingly or unsurprisingly, they quickly find Ricca. They bring him back to interrogate him. Again, good cop, bad cop. Rafi is the bad cop. Worf is the good cop until Worf starts to notice something about Rika. Uh, Rafi thinks that he's just a drug addict and that he is suffering from withdrawals. But Worf notices that Rika is not a, dr a drug addict. He discovers that Rika is a changeling. He, he would only know that Rika was a changeling through his association uh, with his good friend Odo. We learned that the changelings is coming for the Federation. They have not forgotten about uh, the Dominion War, and they do want revenge on Starfleet and the Federation of Planets. Now, this is a schism, and they use the word schism. This is a schism, a, a mere faction of uh, terrorists from the Great Link founders or whoever you want to call them, Dominion, whatever you want to call them. Odo warns Worf that there is a terrorist faction operating uh, inside of the Great Link, and they have bad intentions for Starfleet. That already put Worf on the trail, thinking that changelings might be a part of the issue. And so they, they killed his changeling. And now they realize that we need to get to the Daystrom Institute and figure out what the changelings really wanted. Because stealing this portal weapon was a diversion. There was something else that they were taking that they wanted to take. Uh, they wanted to take something big and then there's something else. So there's something big is what caught everybody's attention, but we don't know what else is missing from Daystrom. That is Raffi and Worf's uh, next mission. So I guess it comes as no surprise that the saboteur on board the Titan is also a changeling. How this changeling infiltrated the Titan is beyond us for the moment, but we know that he is loose on the ship and he had installed a bomb that went off and disables the warp drive. Meanwhile, on the bridge, Seven has informed the bridge that there is a changeling on board the ship. But right now, Riker and Picard are having a big, huge, heated discussion about how they need to handle the situation they're in. Again, Picard says they need to fight their way out. Riker wants to turn and run. And the difference is Riker is looking at almost in the same manner as Shaw. I want to keep this crew safe and I want to make sure everybody gets home. Whereas Picard is thinking, we are not going to have an opportunity to stop this ship ever again. This is the opportunity we have. We can fight our way out of it and we can leave. Picard is still uh, doing just what Beverly said he did. However, I'm not going to go into picking sides between Riker and Picard because in this situation, it feels very, uh, it feels almost forced that they're mad at each other. I understand that this 
this challenging uh, of one another is good for the plot, but it doesn't feel earned, if you get what I'm saying. But Riker starts to realize I don't have no choice but to listen to Picard. So he turns the ship about and they fire a volley of torpedoes at the Shrike. And the Shrike opens up a damn portal and those same torpedoes come back and hit the Titan in the ass, disabling the engine. So now they are just sitting ducks. They just falling and falling and falling deeper into the nebula, which has a gravity well at the center, by the way. So they're going to get sucked in to probably certain death. <laughs> the end. No. Um, Riker then turns to Picard and said, Admiral, remove yourself from my bridge. You just killed us all. Which we know is not true because there's still seven more episodes left. But <laughs> but we also know that Riker is feeling some type of way. I guess, I guess he feels like he has already suffered loss with the loss of his son. And he didn't want any other parent to have to go through that especially with the with the child of one of your friends on board the ship, uh, Sidney LaForge. I failed to mention that when Jack was in this room dying from this, in, inhaling these uh, poisonous gases, he had a vision. This was a vision of Seven telling him to find her, uh, follow the branches, find me. She had these red tendrils coming up out of her head, and then there was a door that was kind of illuminated in red, and it was opening, but we didn't get to see what was on the other side of the door. And I was wondering, what the hell is that all about? Now, on the other side of the door, we could see that the light that was coming in from the other side of that door was a blinding white light. I don't know what to make of that. A little bitty tiny part of me says this could be a DS9 reference. And if you'd like to hear more about that, join us on Sunday, 4.30 p.m. for our uh, for our live stream. And that is Central Time. But uh, yeah, that was weird. It was weird. And I'm wondering, like, where are we going with that? And then um, Seven saves Jack from this room, takes him down to sick bay, and that's when Picard enters the turbo lift and takes that same 17-second ride down to the sick bay, not knowing if his son was going to live or die. And then you see the parents, uh, Beverly, working hard to, to bring uh, Jack back because he had flatlined. And Picard, the level of worry that was on his face, and when Jack took a breath, the level of, uh, I guess, relief that you could see and he knew then that he had become a father. It was a beautiful moment. Uh, and there were a, a few very touching moments in a very action-packed episode where so much happened. Um, and I am excited to see how this thing ends up. All right, let's just get to next week. I don't even have to worry about how it ends up. Let's get to next week. <laughs> uh, on my regular scale of one to five, I'm giving this thing a 4.75 because I do feel that the tension between Riker and Picard was a little forced. That is the only reason this thing ain't getting a five for me this week, okay? So I am still holding my fives close to the chest. I haven't given one out yet. <laughs> if you enjoyed this review, please smash the like button, subscribe to my channel, turn your notifications on so you will not miss an upload or a live stream. And if you'd like to support After the Snap Movies and TV, slide me a super thanks or take the plunge and join my channel like these fine folks. With all that, thank you for joining me once again for Star Trek Picard uh, Season 3 coverage, and I will see you in the next one. Live long and prosper. Peace.